Hey, good morning. Hey, if you're new, I'm Charlie, the lead pastor here. Man, we really are glad that everybody is here uh, worshiping with us today. As you can obviously tell from the Christmas carols, we are celebrating Christmas around here. We've been at Christmas series. It'll be our third week and continue that next week and at Christmas Eve as well. And really excited about sharing with you guys and being with all of you. But I'm going to confess, I don't want to use the word distracted because that's that's too far, but I do have something else that's occupying my mind. We, our family, we're pretty excited about it because in three weeks from today, we are headed to Disney World. Yes. Yeah, so that's the thing, man, about Disney World. We go about every three years or so. And we kind of, you know, we had a, plan, a trip planned last year. Didn't get work, didn't get worked out for reasons you could probably guess. And um, and and so we're, we we feel like it's like it feels like extra. So I like got two trips in us or something like that. And we get really excited. We've been doing this since I mean our oldest two. I mean they're 24 and 21 now. I mean they were, the first time we went they were three and six. And we just we just love it as a family. And we're we're so excited about uh, spending a week there. It's it's so much fun. If you've you've been around me enough, you probably know this. Probably heard me talk about it. You know, it's like, for me, one of the things I love is like, there's, is, there's a lot of strategy involved and you just feel like, I feel like I can win and it's really cool. And it always happens, right? It always happens. This will, this will happen probably today at some point because I talk about it and somebody's going to be like, hey, we're going to Disney World. Can you help? And it's almost like I got a side gig now. I've never, I've never gotten a dime for it. And so it's not technically a side gig of helping people plan these trips because I mean, it really does. It takes, it takes a lot of strategy. It takes a lot of putting it together to have a great experience, but you can't, you can have a great experience, awesome. But even as I'm saying all of this, and I say, we're going to Disney World, there's a significant number of you that's kind of like, right? You're just like, man, Disney World is the worst. What is wrong with this guy? And if you're brand new, you might be thinking, man, I, uh, I, I, this guy's an idiot. I came to the wrong, we came to the wrong church today. Anybody who likes Disney World, they go, what's wrong with them? And you'll talk to these people and, you know, and, and, and they'll come to me and they'll say, yeah, I don't really even, I don't even like Disney World. I'm like, why not? Why don't you like Disney World? It's like, man, it's crowded. I'm like, yeah, okay, sure, sure. It's for kids. Yep, 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 yep. It's expensive. Sure, sure, sure. And they have these things about it that they say, and it's not that any of them are false. I mean, I can say that you're not doing it right, but I, I could get distracted. I, I, I could get distracted here. It's the reason I thought about putting a picture, a couple of pictures of us at Disney World. Hey, look, there's us at Disney World. Then I knew we'd get crazy distracted. I'm trying to stay minimally distracted because ultimately I do, I do have a point. Um, we, we, we decide that we know what Disney World is partly from secondhand thoughts, maybe some firsthand experience. And we put a two or three different ideas together, and we decide, well, this is what it is. And it's not just places. It's not just places like Disney World that we do. We do this to, you know, other states in the United States, other, other countries, people that maybe don't vote the way that we vote, people who don't look like us, people who are just different. We decide that we know what people are and what things are, based on two or three small anecdotal things, and we think that we can put people, a place, a group, we can put them in this box. And we do the exact same thing when it comes to, if I say, well, tell me, tell me who God is, and we have this idea about God. And most of the things that we would say about God are true. Disney World's expensive. It's, it's crowded. It's for kids. Okay, 
that's not all that's true. I mean, God, God, well, I mean, God, God is God is love. Yeah, okay. He's compassionate and kind. Okay, okay. That's that's not that's not that's not all that he is. And we have these kind of limiting perspectives. Well, tell me about Jesus. Jesus, he was a great teacher. Sure, sure, he was a great teacher. He was really kind to people. Yeah, yeah, okay. But we put him into a box. We put God in a box in ways that often make Jesus very convenient, maybe we'll say. Or or make him where he, I think more often what we do, we make Jesus where he's not going to particularly challenge me a lot, but he's going to challenge them a lot. Whoever they are, they need to be challenged. I don't want to be challenged. And we as 21st century, you know, American Christians, we didn't invent this concept. We actually see it all throughout the life of Jesus himself. As he, I mean, he's, he's not confused about who Jesus is being Jesus. He was the Messiah. He, he, he knew who he was. He knew what he was called to do. But who he was was outside of this caricature that the religious, the, the Jewish leaders of the time had decided the Messiah, he can't be the Messiah because he doesn't fit in this box. And so what you see in the Old Testament really is, is God trying to prepare everyone for what he's going to be like. But very often, and again, we do this still, you still can't see what he says about himself, about you, about Jesus. You can't see it because we're just too restricted. And so God is trying to get to, to, to expand their picture. He's trying to get us to do the same as well. And so the question that is being answered in this passage that we've been looking at is this. What is the Messiah going to be like? They knew that God was going to send someone to save them. He was going to be this, this, this freer of God's people. He was going to do something new. He was going to save them. They knew this and they had an idea. And they, and they, and they were looking at the same passages that we look at and we think we can see it so clearly, but at the same time, we've just maybe perhaps created a different box to restrain and try to contain who God is. But we've been looking at this passage in Isaiah 9 trying to answer this question. Like, what, what is this going to be like? What, what, who is Jesus? For us, the question would be phrased a little different. Who is Jesus really? What was his mission? What does it mean that Jesus was the Messiah? And we've been looking at this passage in Isaiah chapter 9. In Isaiah chapter 9, it's kind of this description of what Jesus is going to be like, what the Messiah is going to be like when he comes. And in it, are there are four descriptive phrases that are used to kind of talk about who he's going to be, the roles that he's going to play. And we're spending these four weeks talking about them. So let's just look at it again. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. <clears throat> For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. And so we have in this description, we have, there's a lot of 
there's a lot of king ruler imagery here. You know, he's going to be a king like David. He's going to, his throne's going to be forever. He's going to have the government. The government is going to be on him. His government will be full of peace. Just a lot of ruler king imagery. And in between these, in this, these descriptors, we have these four titles that he's given. And then even a lot of them have a lot of that same, that same sort of description, including the, mark, the one that Mark looked at a couple of weeks ago, the fourth one there, Prince of Peace. And Prince of Peace, man, he, he's a ruler, but he's a ruler that brings peace. He's a ruler that is going to bring peace. And, and with that, what they heard, especially years later, as they are ultimately being conquered by Babylonians and Assyrians and then Persians and then Greeks and Romans and just constantly living under these kind of oppressive conquered regimes, a ruler that is going to bring peace, they was like, well, this is, he's finally, God's going to come. He's going he's gonna, to he's gonna take all these people out, and so we're going to have peace, the kind of peace that comes from, you know, winning a war. That's the kind of peace. But we look at it knowing now who Jesus is, and this is what Mark talked about, man, is a different type of peace. Not a peace that comes from your, your enemies being vanquished but a peace that God is wanting to do internally in your life. And then last week we looked at the first one, Wonderful Counselor. And we realized, you kind of put this passage together with that, it's like he's a king, but he's also a counselor. He's a king and a counselor. He's a king and a counselor. And so, and, and counselor is like really in, in, in this context is like, is like the right-hand man to the king. He's like the right-hand man to somebody. And so not only is he a king, but also for us, he's going to be a counselor. And, and we see, just, we saw this kind of this imagery of, of Jesus as being someone who's willing to submit and to humble himself in order for us to have life. And what type of counselor? A wonderful counselor, one that is full of wonders who can do incredible things. And today we're going to look at the second one here on this list. Last week, wonderful counselor. And today we're going to look at, the, at this title, Mighty God. And um, just for funsies, to give you a little Hebrew here, well, Hebrew here, the, the, the Hebrew phrase here is El Gabor, two words, El Gabor. And El, E-L, is, is, is what is always in, in the Bible, in the Old Testament translated as God. And, and often when, when, when we have this descriptor, it's like God, El, and there's always usually some sort of adjective that comes after it, you know. The God who is this, the God who is this. And here we have El Gabor, the God that is mighty. Now, I don't know how many of you folks are old school. And normally I don't go too old school here, but I don't know how many Amy Grant fans that we have here in, in the room. And I don't want to, for anybody who is, you know, doesn't know what I'm talking about, I hate doing things that people don't connect with. But, man, I've had that uh, Amy Grant's El Shaddai song stuck in my head all week long. And I'm just saying it's been a rough week. Um, and say so, yeah, it, the God who saves, the God who is mighty, the God who is good, the God that brings peace, the God that is love. I mean, like all of these descriptors. And here we have one that's translated in our English, mighty God, the God that is mighty. And so I think it is important for us kind of both linguistically and just kind of in context, kind of understand what does that phrase mean? What did they think it meant? Uh, but, but what does God want us to really understand about his son and what he's trying to do by describing Jesus, by describing the Messiah as a God 
the God that is mighty. And so we'll just kind of break it down to a couple of things, the two, the two different parts, and then ultimately kind of bring them together. And the first, and I think ultimately really the most important piece of this for us to understand, is, is a very simple theological concept that is actually of great significance, is that he is God. I mean, that's who he is. I mean, Jesus is God, capital G God, like the same as God the Father. God, he, he is God, not some God in some lower tier, small g kind of way. Not, not well, he's kind of, he's kind of God-like. He's kind of got Lord-like powers, but he's not really capital G God. No, capital G God here. And I don't know if you've ever had interactions with the people that kind of come around knocking on your door trying to give out pamphlets to you or anything. But the, one of the two main groups that will do this is a group called the Jehovah's Witnesses. And, um, and, and I don't know what, what you know about them. This may sound a little harsh, especially for somebody like me who usually speaks very highly about other churches. But this place is a cult. And, and I use the word cult. It's like a, it's like a Jesus-affiliated cult. And what I mean by that, because I want to make sure we don't know what we're talking about. Because if I say they're a cult, like you start thinking like goat horns and campfires and, and really weird stuff, living on compounds, giant guns. It's not like that. Not like, you know, crazy going to kill you or do weird things like that kind of cult. But a, a, another definition really for it is something that kind of seems like it's connected to Christianity and has enough in common where it's kind of adjacent. But what they believe is so off of what really Christians believe that it's a, it's a cult. And one of the things that's really important to them is to convince you that Jesus is in fact not God. And they, they do a lot of mis, you know, bad translations, a lot of really weird things that they do to the Bible to kind of make you understand it. And one of it happens here. It's like, oh man, he's like, oh, see, it's clearly describing Jesus right here. He's God. It's, well, no, no, it's not really God because it only says he's mighty God and real God's almighty. So this is kind of like a, like a second tier God, which is a ridiculous thing to say for a lot of reasons, and I'm not trying to be too hard on them, but maybe I am. Like, obviously, you, don't, you, you, don't, you, don't understand, you, you just believe what you want to believe rather than understanding, like, Greek and Hebrew because there is, this isn't a very common phrase, the El Gabor, the God that is mighty. It's not very common, but it is used one other place, actually, in the next chapter, in Isaiah chapter 10, verse 21, where it says that a remnant will remain, a remnant of Jacob, will return to the mighty God, El Gabor. It's obviously in this context what he's talking about. He's talking about who we would refer to as God the Father. So the same phrase is used twice, once to describe the Messiah and once to describe who we would refer to as God the Father. And so it's not very common, but it is used as a very clear descriptor of the one that we all recognize being capital G God. And I think it is really important for us. This is not just some abstract piece of theology. Hey, you need to understand Jesus wasn't just a man. He was a man and he was also fully God. It, you know, it is important to have good theology. But this theology matters for a couple of reasons. One, it really helps us fully understand what happens with the gospel. If Jesus was just a man and lived a perfect life, that would be really cool. And he would get to go to heaven but just him. Oh, but he died on the cross to save us. Well, if he's just a dude, like he's like one dude gets one ticket. And it's like, I got a ticket. I'm willing to die on the cross. So I'm going to sacrifice myself. And I've got 
one ticket to give. One dude can die for one dude. If it is in fact God himself who is sacrificing himself. Capital G God. He has tickets. His sacrifice, his death for your death. His, he's got all of the tickets. He's got tickets enough for everyone. And so it is a significant reason why this piece of theology really matters for us to fully understand who Jesus is. But there's also another aspect of this that I think is really important that might be box expanding for us, which is, hey, tell me what you know about Jesus. Huh? Jesus is a really good teacher. Absolutely, he's a good teacher. And he, he lived a great life. Yes. We should model our life after him. Also, yes, all of that is true. But if you add to that that he's God, it changes things. Because he's a really cool dude, lived a good life, and I should model him. He's got good teaching. Then I look at him and I think, man, okay, if all that's true, he's got some really good advice. And I should follow his advice. I should try to live like Jesus lived in the way that Jesus said I should because he is a very smart, good, and compassionate teacher. But you need to understand, if Jesus is God, let me make sure we understand, God doesn't give advice. Kings don't give advice. Gods don't give advice. God, gods give commands. When God says something, it's not advice. It is, this is how your life must be. Not if you'd like, if you think, like, will you consider, will you please think about it, right? It is, it's, it's commands. And Mark and I, we, we talk about this all the time, kind of like how the, the kind of church that we want it to be, kind of how we want it to feel. I use this word, I promise I'm not trying to be cool. I, even if I were trying to be cool, I'm not cool. I know I'm not cool, you know I'm not cool, it's fine, right? Like, what, 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 what is the vibe? Like, what, what vibe, what vibe are we trying to have here? And one of the things that's really important is that you know, man, I'm not ever trying to give you a hard time. I'm not ever trying to be like, man, you, like, we, we say God loves sinners, but not, not, not whatever this is. Like, I'm not ever looking at you thinking that somehow, man, you, you I can't believe you came to the, our church sinful and broken. No, 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 that's not, that's not what we do here. You know, because we understand that God is gracious and compassionate, but it doesn't matter how sinful or broken you are. I'm not going to give you a hard time as if that's not also true of me. Because you're sinful and broken, and I'm sinful and broken. I traveled to Tulsa yesterday to go to a basketball game that didn't go well. And I was sinful and broken. I mean, it was there. It was there. It was there. It, it was there, it was there, sinful and broken. It, it, was, it, was there, it was there to be seen. But it's not just in silly ways. I'm sinful and broken with my kids. I, I, I get really impatient with them. I don't, I, don't love the way, I don't love my wife the way she needs to be loved all the time. I am, I am sinful and broken. I, I, am, I am someone in desperate need of God's grace. And so I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to give you a hard time. The reality of it is, somebody needs to give you a hard time. You, you, you need to probably be giving you a little more, hard, uh, more of a hard time. Because we've got this sign. We've got this sign on the, um, on the outside of the church that says, You belong. And it's, it's on the outside of the church. And I think that's a really important image. 
People are driving by. People are walking in for the first time. This is what they see. You belong. You walk in, you belong. This can be your place. Just you. You as you are. But Mark and I have joked about the fact we need to walk in. You see that sign, you belong. But there needs to be a sign kind of on, on your way out. Say, man, hey, man, get it together. Right? And it's kind of like, like both those pieces. Like, hey, you belong just as you are. Man, get it together. We got to do better than this. We cannot settle for whatever, whatever this is. That God wants to do something incredible in my life. And it is God saying, this is how I want you to live. I need to live that way. And I need help. And that's what we're doing. We're coming here together knowing you're going to be accepted, no preconditions, but we love each other and we follow God. And this is who God says we're going to be. Now we're going to help each other. We're going to, we're going to help each other become that. And I think one of the challenges for us is, again, we think about these kind of boxes that we put Jesus in. Jesus is kind. He's gracious. He's forgiving. He'll love me no matter what. Yes, 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 yes. But that's not all that it is. But I think a lot of people that end up here at the Grove, you know, a lot of the people who are on staff, and I'll just say this for the all of the people who are currently on the stage, a lot of us came from a religious background. Let's just say it was just really oppressive. God is out to get me. He's trying to, he, he's always disappointed in me. He's looking for ways to punish me all the time. I don't think, not, not that God is gracious, compassionate, and forgiving. And I think a lot of us know what this does to us. But a lot of people who only live over here and don't recognize, hey, God is gracious and compassionate and forgiving, and he also has expectations of me. And he's capital G God. We don't know how to... We don't know how to work this out. Like, all I got is this. It's like, and I'm just constantly making excuses for the sin in my life. We're certainly not ever going to be this. But somehow we've got to figure out how to bring these two things together where I recognize that the love of God is completely secure in my life because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross for me. And we've got some work to do to honor this God who both sacrificed for me and just because of who he is, is worthy of it. And I think by the time we kind of get through all four of these titles, we're going to have a more complete picture. But then the challenge for us is going to be, how can we put all of these pieces together? How can I be someone who, 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 is, who rests and trusts in the unconditional love and grace of God and also recognizes that as a follower of God, there are expectations that God wants from me. So this is it. It's really important for us to understand that He is God. But it's not the only thing He says. It doesn't say that He's God. Again, it has this descriptor. He's a God that is mighty. And the way that I want to say it is like He is God, but He's God and a warrior. So again, I was talking about these Jehovah's Witnesses, and they were, they were like, you know, it says mighty God as opposed to almighty God. Almighty God having this idea of omnipotence, that God can do anything. There's no limit to God's power. So almighty is, that's all the way up here. Mighty, just like you're strong, but not all powerful. Which again, just shows you just don't understand how language works. Because it's not mighty in the sense of not almighty. In fact, it is, you look at where this word Gabor, where it is used in the Old Testament, it is overwhelming 95% of the time, overwhelmingly used in a military context. David, who is the second king of Israel, 
and was really known as a warrior himself, had this group of men that were with him who were kind of his generals and lieutenants, and they were referred to as David's mighty men, his mighty men, mighty men, mighty men. If you were to, and I don't know why you would, but if you were to look it up yourself and try to figure out where this word is used, that's what you would see. David's mighty men, a mighty man. David's mighty men, David's mighty, 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 mighty. Describe, and then it would describe their heroic acts in war. And so when, when someone who really understood this language hears this for the first time, okay, this is a God, this is a warrior. He is mighty like a fighter, like a warrior, like a conqueror, a vanquisher of enemies. This is a strong, powerful word. It's not meant to exclude or include anything about can he do anything, but it is a very particular type of might and strength a might and strength that a warrior would have. And so if you think, okay, well, how would they have understood this? Again, in a context where they are living as a conquered people. They're living as a conquered people. They absolutely would want their king and their Messiah to be mighty. And what a mighty God would do as far as they were concerned is a mighty God would vanquish their geopolitical enemies. Countries and peoples who are oppressive to us, a mighty Messiah, a mighty God, a mighty King would come in and get rid of those that we know are our enemies as a country. And so they see this and they're like, finally, mighty God is coming. And this means the enemies will be destroyed. And then Jesus comes and he's not anything like that. So clearly you're not the one. And even his disciples who believed that he was kept waiting. When are you going to do something about the Romans? When are you going to do something about the Romans? In fact, at the very end, after he died and come back to life, he's meeting with them like, is, is now the time when you're going to do the thing with all the, the stab and the kill and the get rid of the bad people? He's like, that's not, don't worry about that. He says, you, you don't, don't worry about that. That, that, that. Here's what you need to be worried about. What you need to be worried about is the Holy Spirit is going to come and you're going to be my witnesses to the whole world. That's what you need to worry about. You're worried about me being mighty God in this context and vanquish your enemies. But the thing that, that Jesus understood and believed that they needed to understand and that we need to understand is God doesn't view other people as enemies like that. You don't have enemies. The people that they were calling their enemies, God, God thought they were, their, they, they were their mission field. And this goes all the way back to the very first thing when Israel was being formed, Genesis chapter 12. And he says to Abraham, I'm going to bless you, but I'm going to bless you so that every nation and people group on the whole earth can be blessed because of this blessing. And the fact that they are outside of God's family doesn't make them your enemies. These are the people that the blessing is supposed to extend to. I'm not trying to vanquish enemies. I'm trying to bring people into the family. That's, that's, that's not what this is about. The same goes for you. You don't have enemies. You don't have people that you're wishing God would vanquish. And I say that back. You do wish that. But you're not supposed to. Some of us get this idea and we get really frustrated with God and we 
when somebody does something to us or something bad happens in the world and we kind of, God, why would you let this happen? Why do you let sinners do so? God, I wish you would do something about sin. I wish you would wipe out sinners. And I'm like, man, who, you saying that? God's going to do something. He's going to wipe out all the sinners right now. Where are you going to be? Where am I going to be? But we think like we're in and they're out and God get rid of those that are out when really we're in, they're out. And God's saying, go, go bring them in. Because Jesus is mighty. He is a conqueror. He is a warrior. He has destroyed things. He has destroyed the power of sin in your life. He has destroyed the penalty of sin in your life. He's described like, you're going to have trouble in this world, is what he said, John 16. You're going to have trouble in this world, but take heart. I have overcome the world. I've been mighty to this world. Maybe not in the way that you wish. That'll come later. There will come a time when sin will be removed. But for right now, you worship and celebrate the fact that I have been mighty about the power and the penalty of sin in your life. That I have vanquished and conquered death through my resurrection. And you no longer have to fear sin. You no longer have to fear death. And you can have life. And now take that message. This is what he tells them when they're asking him. When they're asking Jesus in Acts. Is this now when you're going to take care of them? He's like, you don't worry about that. You be witnesses. And when we think about the mighty God in our life, we don't think about what we wish he would do to people that we don't like, people that appear to be God's enemies, people that you think are your enemies, people that we as Christians have decided are thems. That's not what we're trying to do. We're trying to bring the hope of the conquering mighty God who has conquered sin, who has conquered death. We are trying to bring that mighty God to them. And so as we worship this Jesus, let's, let's let him just break free a little bit. And we'll see next week this more compassionate, loving side of Jesus. But let's right now, let's just be a little bit in awe of capital G God that is worthy of my worship, and my devotion, and my obedience. And let's worship and celebrate the fact that he has been a conqueror of the worst things that are going on inside of me. And the worst things that could happen to me through death. And let's ask him to help us be carriers of that light, life, and hope to a world that is desperate for it. Let's pray.